yoga nidra, yoga, meditation, mindfulness. That is what we're talking about on today's show. Welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 327. My guest is the wonderful Kelly Smith, whose work I came across with her Mindful in Minutes uh, and Meditation Mama. Uh, they are very widely listened to on iTunes for people who really want to just drop in for a few minutes. Uh, she makes it so easy. But what Kelly also is, is a globally celebrated yoga meditation teacher. And she founded Yoga For You. And what interests me about her approach is her ability to help you find what yoga, stillness, mindfulness, meditation means for you. So not teaching it to you through her lens or through the lens of a particular guru uh, or through a particular uh, cultural or religious lens. Uh, and that's really one of the themes that keeps coming back in our conversation today is how one does that, as well as expanding on uh, yoga nidra as a practice, because this is something she's super passionate about. So I know you guys are going to love Kelly, she has such a wonderful, approachable style, and I really, really enjoyed this conversation diving into these topics with her. Uh, but first, I have to say a huge thank you to everyone who's been leaving reviews lately. We've got a ton of new five-star reviews, and I really, really appreciate anyone taking the time to either review the show or share it on your socials or forward it to a friend who you think might need it. It is never, ever something that I take for granted. So thank you. And of course, as a thank you, I love to find great show sponsors that are highly values aligned to help you make your low tox swaps easier. And uh, one of those companies is Metagenics, who are a wonderful supplement uh, brand they have a long history of supporting practitioners through training. Uh, they were one of the pioneering organizations when it came to uh, personal treatment uh, through a, a greater understanding of our genetics. And their formulations are so powerful and excellent that they are practitioner only, which means you actually need a prescription to get a metagenic supplement. You can't just pop into your health shop. Even if they stock them, they will say, where is your note from your practitioner to say that you're allowed to have this? And you can see it from the dosages. I've used many metagenics products over the years, uh, and they're often a much higher dose, much more targeted therapeutic dose uh, that really does require a naturopathic or nutritionist approach or integrative doctor, I should also say, uh, approach to understanding who and why one might need such um, uh, specifically formulated products 
uh, depending on what's going on in your life. Uh, I definitely know there are some wonderful ones for calm and anxiety and uh, and I, I urge any practitioner out there who isn't using these for your clients to definitely give it a go or if you're someone like me who sees a practitioner to ask them about it. I've seen Metagenics at some of the retreats I've been to over the years. I've seen it in all of my health practitioners' uh, health practices. Uh, so it is a loved and trusted brand. And they're also a B Corp. So a big thank you to Metagenics for joining us as a sponsor. Uh, of course, we also have Oz Climate giving you 10% off the already discounted prices. So at the moment, if you're an Aussie listening to this in April live, please jump on their website because they have lowered their online prices even more and you get 10% on top with your low tox life code or one word. Uh, if you're not sure which air filter or which uh, dehumidifier you need, of course, coming into the cooler months, if you're listening to this live, uh, the desiccant dehumidifiers that are a cooler climate. So if you're getting that condensation on your windows, this is really something you might want to consider. You can drop them a line and they are always happy to help you decide on the size, the power, uh, and uh, the amount that you might need for your floor plan. So a big thank you to Oz Climate for the 10% on top of the already discounted prices. And lastly, Primal Alternative, one of my favorite brands. We did a huge giveaway on uh, Instagram. A big congrats to Deb for winning that one, uh, where you're going to get delivered a whole bunch of Primal Alternative goodies. They do flatbreads, low-carb breads, grain-free, plant-based, low-sugar, keto, you name it, they have it to support you with your baking needs, especially if you don't have the time to do it all yourself. But, but the people who are supporting you with this are the Primalista Network. And what being a Primalista means is you are a passionate baker who wants your own business, your own hours, full flexibility uh, and fulfillment in the way you work, baking products that are com that are aligned with your health and well-being goals and values uh, and then serving your community with those delicious grain-free recipes with those whole food ingredients for the busy parents and community members who can't do it all themselves and then you earn money doing that so if that sounds like something you are interested in you have to go to the show notes which is lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast, because Helen, Helen Marshall, the founder, has actually prepared an ebook specifically for our community to help you see what being a primalista is all about. It's a license-based business. So basically you purchase the license, you receive a ton of support, all of the recipes, all of the preferred uh, buying discounts, all of the labels, all of their cellophane is compostable, which is fantastic. So Helen has really thought of everything in terms of sustainability as well. And Helen provides amazing mentoring and she's actually giving away three one-on-one -on -one mentoring sessions uh, herself, which are worth $660 to anyone who jumps into the Primal Alternative uh, business in the next little while. So that's huge. 
Um, and I know a lot of people were interested the last time uh, Primal Alternative sponsored, so please do head to the show notes and check out that PDF because it's a really wonderful way to see what the offer is and how to make the most of it. If you've been thinking of starting your own business for a while, but you just don't want to start it all from scratch with everything having to be done by you, a licensing business like Primal Alternative could be the go, especially if you're a passionate baker and you know there are people around you that are always saying, I don't have time to do it all. Uh, maybe you could make that easy for them. So a huge thank you to our sponsors. And now let's listen to Kelly Smith and all of this good stuff about helping us slow down, connect to a deeper space within and relax because I don't know about you, but I need to do a lot of that. Uh, uh, and it's, it's screaming out to me so much so that my, I tore something in my foot last week. Thank gosh, I've just found out it's not a break. Uh, but I'm in a moon boot and I have been forced to relax and you know what? That's not such a bad thing. So I've definitely done a couple of yoga nidras this week and I hope by the end of this show, you'll be inspired to as well. Enjoy. Hello, Kelly. How are you doing? I am so good. How are you doing? I am really well. And I love that we are mutually hiding out from hectic things <laughs> happening with families getting ready for things or getting ready for bed or, and we have just <laughs> shut all of that out and we are talking yoga and meditation. So. Absolutely. I love that too. And I love that you're in the future. Mm, we are. It's really good here. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> love, love to hear that. I'd love to yeah. have look forward to tomorrow. Yes. And the lottery numbers are, no, yeah. just kidding. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I want to ask you where, where does yoga and meditation come into your life? Was it something you saw in adults in your life growing up or was it something you sought out to heal a personal uh, challenge. Like I, I'm always interested in how people find it because the story is usually pretty good. Yeah. You know, it was a little bit of both for me. Mm -hmm. I think the first time that I was like introduced to even like the word yoga was my mom had like a book and it was mm. like one of those, just like a big book that had just a bunch of, you know, pictures of women from the nineties and very nineties, like workout clothes doing different poses. And then the poses had these different names. It was just like your standard, like yoga book. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, came across that like on our bookshelf when I was young, young. And, but then when I was like a teenager and early teen, I started going to some yoga classes as cross training for my sports. Mm -hmm. um, people said that, you know, it's a good way to reduce um, injury and to increase flexibility, but I was very much there, like for the stretch. And yeah, I was even a shavasana skipper. Which, oh like, wow! Okay, you know, so and I'll, for the beginners, just just explain what it is, just in case someone's Absolutely. coming to yoga for the first time on this show. Yeah, so if you're coming to yoga for the first time, shavasana, which means corpse pose, um, is that last pose that you do at the end, where it looks like you're just kind of laying there. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot more to it. And, and I know we'll probably dive into that in a bit. Um, but I used to be one of those people that once we hit the mat at the end, granted, I was like 14, 15. Um, I was like, well, this is why here. would I lay here? And yeah, like my, I did the stretch, like my work is done and I'd roll up the mat and just like walk out the door, which mm -hmm. I'm sure if like 14 year old me now knows that like 
32 year old me now leads practices like Mm -hmm. yoga nidra. That's like a 90 minute Shavasana. I would be like sent into a coma, Mm -hmm. but, um, I, yeah. And I, then I kind of was introduced to mindfulness and some of the softer sides of yoga. Um, when I was 16, my mom was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer and Mm. I was her primary caregiver. And I actually saw her engaging in like some visualization and, um, I didn't like, I thought of it more as like prayer at the time, but now I know like in hindsight, it was very much kind of like meditation and using that as a tool, like during her, um, battle with cancer and also like during her recovery. Mm -hmm. And I really was introduced to kind of that softer side, that more mindful side. And it wasn't until I didn't do anything with that until uh, after I graduated college and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Mm. So I was like, well, I'll go take a yoga teacher training as many do when they don't know, you know, what to do in that moment. They're like, I'll go take a yoga teacher training. And, and that kind of kicked everything off. I just fell in love with it. And yoga and meditation had been these things that had always been little touchstones during my life, but I never really like put it all together until all of a sudden I found myself being an, you know, an adult with this piece of paper saying I graduated college, which I never did anything with that piece of paper. Mm. And I thought, well, heck I'll go become a yoga teacher. So I did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So interesting. I have a hilarious first introduction to yoga. It was the nineties reference that you gave me there. Uh, that made me think of it. My friend and I were studying for um, like an exam or something. She was at my house and, you know, we had the Jane Fonda video. We had, like, I'm a child of the eighties, you're a child of the nineties. So, um, and, uh, and then there was this yoga video. I was like, oh, let's try that one. I don't even know what yoga is. Um, and so we put it on and we start like there's no words she doesn't describe anything explain anything nothing she just starts moving so we figure we just got a copy and so we start copying and she goes into a full back bend <laughs> and we're like um <laughs> this is for us it turns out that was just like an introduction sequence, like, you know, and then there was the music and then there was the talking and the mat and the everything. She was on a hill. It was outside. <laughs> I did not go to a yoga class, my first yoga class for like 20 years after that, because I, it was like this um, awful, like you have to be this super bendy, flexy person to do yoga. And I was not. And uh, isn't it funny how we make a decision about a whole thing in our heads? Oh, that's not for me. When, when you just say one thing, what a shame. It is a shame, but you know what? Now I hear this all the time as a teacher. And I also just think like some context, this is going to date me, but some context for like any younger listeners, Mm -hmm. but like yoga and meditation and mindfulness and manifestation, all of that, it it didn't used to be in fashion. Like no, no. even I'm even, old enough to tell you, no, it wasn't. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> like it was a very, when I made the decision to, you know, instead of going and pursuing a quote real job and go become like a yoga teacher, like that was a very weird thing to do. That was a very like kind of whisper, like, oh, is she all right? Mm. Kind of a thing. Like, and that was, you know, I don't know, like 12 years ago. Yeah, and wow. and that was still very like it. It was still kind of like yogis were seen as sort of like weird in a way. But mm. I think a lot of that 
is because we get so used to having one thing depicted as yoga and your story about like the big full back bend. I think about similar things all the time because when I first started teaching and I ended up moving to this very rural part of the U.S. for my husband's job. And I opened a yoga studio there. And the people who lived in this town were very just kind of middle America. Like, you know, they think, you know, they thought that yoga was all backbends and like, you know, against their religion and things like that. And we are so ingrained with this one particular image of what yoga is, which mm. is usually like some you described it perfectly. Some woman on like a mountainside doing this. <laughs> backbend and you look at that image and or you look at that you know what that image is saying and you automatically can look at that and say I'm in or I'm out mm-hmm. or I can be that or I can't be that yeah. and it's the same thing that made me a shavasana skipper is that no one ever told me why we do it or the benefits of it mm. I just I was never educated in that and I had so many of my students who had never practiced yoga before and, you know, I moved to this small town, this like one bar, one Walmart town um, in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And I had so many people that were just, that was the image that they had in their head. And I had to work really hard to even get people to walk in the front door and to say, no, it's it's really like, it can be that if you want it to, but it usually isn't that, or it doesn't have to be that, or it's so much more complex than just that Mm. bendy woman on a mountainside. But (laughs) yeah, we have that image stuck in our head about that's what yoga is. We do. And I just want to pick up on uh, the you being a Shavasana skipper, because (laughs) for me, that's like you as a 14 year old saw it as lying down and doing nothing. And therefore it wasn't worth anything and therefore you could do something. And so what is that saying to our young people growing up that the idea of lying down, resting, like focusing on your breathing, focusing on each body part, letting it go, as we're going to talk about in a little minute, um, is not worthwhile. Like slowing down is not worthwhile. It's not worth something. So go do something. I think that's really a sort of uh, indication of uh, our systemic need for doing and uh, and not being in our culture, right? Yeah, and I think that we just tie so much of our own personal value to our ability to produce and do. Mm. And even, I mean, even at a young age, yeah. And I still do it. You know, I as a yoga and meditation teacher, I still sometimes find myself, you know, feeling guilty for quote, you know, doing nothing or for resting. And I think we're just so ingrained to value doing Mm. and achieving and completing and checking another thing off the list that we allow the art of rest or the art of rejuvenation. I have a friend who calls it the art of divine laziness, which I think is. Oh, I love that. That's nice. I know. And (laughs) like, we let that get so low on the priority list because it's like, if we aren't doing something or quote, have something to show for it. Although often people who do engage in the art of divine laziness usually have like happiness and fulfillment to show Mm -hmm. for it. But if we don't have like a finished product of like, here's this thing I checked off the list. It, it's of no value to us. Mm, yeah. And so you're in a little town in the middle of Missouri and do people start coming in the door? And what do you notice as 
they do and what does that journey look like? They do start coming in the door. And at first it's like a little, you know, trickle, trickle. The place that I was living was a really interesting place because we were there. My husband, there's a medical school there mm-hmm. and we moved there. And so the population is very much um, like doctors, professors, medical students is one half. And the other half is like what you imagine, you know, your small town Midwestern American to be. Mm-hmm. And so at first it was very like, you know, the people who had maybe moved to this town from somewhere else who are familiar with yoga, they started coming. Yeah. And, you know, that was fine. That, that I was used to. But the thing that really struck me was that when I started to get more people that I kind of, you know, live forever growing up in this town, it really challenged my teaching in a good way. I think that I realized that the point of a teacher is to serve your students. So I started mm. having these students come in, they started asking me questions like, is yoga against my religion, which I had never been asked before. I grew from, mm. moved from a really liberal, you know, large city. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that like broke my brain for a second because I just never been asked that question or people mm. coming in and, you know, being uncomfortable with me teaching in Sanskrit, which I now in hindsight teach in common English anyways, just for cultural appropriation reasons. But at that time, you know, it was very traditional to, you know, like a good yoga teacher. Mm. Would, yeah, of course. You, know, you had to te- use all the words. And, yeah, yeah. Of mm-hmm. course. And my students didn't want that. They didn't care. They're like, well, I'm not here for a language course. They were mm. often there like to help with their blood pressure. I had a lot of people who wanted to be able to put their shoes on by themselves without mm-hmm. needing assistance. And it just, you know, I recognized in myself that like my teaching wasn't about me. It was about them. And it really challenged me to become truly a better teacher for my students to help them on their journey, which looked very different based on the individual. Yeah, you got to meet people where they are at, not where yes. you are at as a teacher. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. so good. And and what uh what did they experience? Like did people kind of start to go, "Wow, like this is actually really helping me in, in lots of different ways." Were there epiphanies left, right and center by the time you got going? Hmm. I think saying epiphanies left, right, and center is giving myself too much credit. <laughs> um, I, th- <laughs> I think that, you know, I think that people, re- and this is one of my favorite things about yoga, is that it can be a slow burn at times. So I think that the first thing right off the bat, you know, almost everyone's first class, it was usually their first experience with yoga, their first experience you know, with my type of yoga that I try my best to make it as approachable as possible, that they were surprised at what it wasn't, that it Mm -hmm. wasn't that, you know, bendy spiritual woman on top of the mountain, that Mm -hmm. they could just come and move their bodies and like honor themselves in a way and that it's, you know, a really beautiful community. And I think they were mostly surprised about what it wasn't. And then over time, they started to see not only these physical benefits. So, you know, being able to climb the stairs a little bit easier, being able to put their own shoes on these, you know, these simple things that, yeah, that are so profound. And then after even more time, they started to see changes internally. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of students that would comment and say, you know, I don't know what you're doing here, but ever since I started doing yoga, I don't yell at people on the road as much as I used to. Mm. Or um, I find myself just waking up a little bit earlier and enjoying the mornings. 
And so it was, there are a lot of commonalities of like immediate shock of, of, oh, this isn't, you know, what I saw in, you know, an eighties yoga, you know, video Mm -hmm. VHS. And then, you know, oh, this feels good for my body. And then, oh, this also impacts my mind and my heart. As yeah, well. I was going to say the things you're describing are, are like nervous system uh, healing uh, signs. So, yeah. yeah. And those are things that people don't, they definitely didn't walk in mm. saying, hello, Kelly, I would like to heal my nervous system today. <laughs> no, they usually came in like with cynicism and skepticism. And I've always been one who likes to teach with humor and to just, just be like, Hey, like, if you don't like it, you know, just give it a try. If you don't like it, just you can leave. I don't care. You know, come see if it's for you. If not, no problem. And try to just, you know, welcome people in. And, um, you know, they definitely weren't, Hey, I I would love to connect with my highest self and heal my nervous system. But over time, (laughs) like those are the type of things that were happening. And I think that when it comes to practice like yoga, that's what brings people back. You can move your body in a lot of different ways and it can be beneficial but I think it's kind of the mind body heart piece that Mm. really keeps people coming back to the practice of yoga Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to ask about trauma grief people who are really going through tough stuff Mm -hmm. uh, and often they find quietness and slowing things down can actually be super confronting uh, and like you know relaxing in a pose on the floor doing nothing at the end I mean, like all the thinking, all the feels. How does yoga help um, in that process? Like how can you still be a a part of yoga when you find the stillness and the quietness of it uh, confronting? That's such a good question. And I, full transparency, consider myself like mildly Mm -hmm. trauma-informed. And... And so I personally, I can only speak from my own experience. I try to do a few different things or a few things come up for me when you ask that question. Mm. The first thing is that as a teacher, I always try to create a safe space for my students to experience what they need. And I believe that begins with the first interaction that they have with me. Um, I try to make it like emotionally a safe space. So if Mm. someone feels the need to talk about something or if they, you know, if they feel like they need to leave or something isn't serving them, I want to create an environment where they feel like they can take ownership over what they need. Mm -hmm. I also try to keep an open dialogue. And if anyone comes and, you know, speaks to me about any trauma they've experienced or support that they need, that's outside of my scope. um, I try to, you know, point them in the direction of someone where that is in their scope. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the quiet and the stillness, because this is something that can come up for people who maybe aren't even aware of their trauma. Yeah, that's which it, can make right? it a little bit trickier. It's like you don't, you know, they say if you don't feel it, you can't heal it. Mm-hmm. But often, and this comes up, I would say the most in my work with meditation is, you know, they say quiet the mind and the soul shall speak, but it's really like you quiet your mind and everything starts like yelling at you Mm. because if we've constantly been go, 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 or pushing something down, 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 and we finally start to come to a quiet place, the, the trauma, the stress, the worry, the anxiety, the, you know, intrusive thoughts, whatever it is, it often can come bubbling up to the surface Mm -hmm. because it finally feels like this is my chance. Like, 
I can be seen some, you know, I can, you know, present myself. And I always like to kind of warn people that that could be an experience that they have and to remind them that they're within a safe space that, um, you know, they are kind of in charge of their own journey. And I just let people know that when you take a journey to the self, um, there will definitely be some bumps along the road. There will be some shining light on shadows and sometimes there will be some surprises because you can uncover things that you didn't realize were sitting there underneath the surface. And I was taught a technique in which you really try to be an objective observer. Mm-hmm. And if something is bubbling up, you try to look at it as best you can, of course, in the moment. It's easier said than done. You try to look at that objective. This is coming up. Or, oh, that's so interesting. When I do this kind of meditation, when I start to quiet my body, I start thinking about this thing. Or, mm-hmm. oh, that's so interesting. When I try to quiet my mind, I instantly start clenching my chest. And do your yeah. best to look at it as the observer from the outside looking in and gathering information that then maybe you can unpack later. You can dive deeper into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a technique that I have found to be uh, very useful for both myself and my students for those kind of surprises along the way. Yeah. And, you know, it speaks to the culture of busy, doesn't it? That sometimes mm-hmm. we just literally go through life not ever facing or even you know, as we know with um, being ADHD is sometimes like people have to remind you of your own childhood because, you you know, you just had so many things going through your head that you, you weren't really sometimes entirely there. Yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and so it, it can surprise you. I think the word surprise is really um, accurate what you put in there. And, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing. Um so speaking of quiet and stillness, restorative yoga is a favorite of yours. I would love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I love it too. And and can I just ask, what is the thinking behind um, uh, like it is, I guess my question is restorative yoga as a way to really heal the nervous system for, uh, for me there's just no thing that I feel better after than I do after a restorative yoga session it just genuinely feels like someone has cuddled me and comforted me for an hour <laughs> and then I got up and kind of just went oh that was so nice um was what that was that your first experience like when you took your first restorative yoga class Mm -hmm. did you love it from the get-go I did actually yes yeah I didn't even know why um but it just felt like a big comfy blanket yeah it's interesting and I'm finding you know the theme of my own personal story is hating something first and then learning to love it Ah. with time but I my first restorative which is now one of my favorites my first restorative class and this was again this was before I was a teacher and things like that I didn't know what it was Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. It, it happened to be the class I could go to on the schedule. So I said, no problem. I'll go. And it was like torturous to me. Oh, well, and this was, was a total s- waste of time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's like you were there. <laughs> and no, but again, I can see how like... it would be. I can see how it would be. I guess I was, I must have been ready for that. Yeah. I must have really needed it uh, because I felt like it was exactly what I need. Um, 
Whereas obviously you were like, uh, well, that's an hour I'm never getting back. <laughs> but, but it definitely was an hour that I needed, but it mm-hmm. was not an hour that I understood. Got and it. to me, once I learned about the purpose and I've always been, you know, a very inquisitive person, I'm sure, I don't know, Alex, if you're, you know, ADHD shows up in this way, but I love to just go and you know, dive into a little wormhole and oh yeah, learn. become an expert in two hours of something. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I've always needed to know like the why and the how around mm. something to understand the value of it or yeah. to understand the the significance of it. And so once I started learning about the why behind restorative yoga, and we just touched on it briefly in my 200 teacher training. Um, I ended up doing a you know, much more, many more hours specifically in restorative yoga. But when I learned about the benefits around the nervous system, around giving, physically giving the body time to rest and restore and how important that is, like for your immune system, for, you know, your muscular health, your cellular health, your mental health, Mm -hmm. emotional health. And I really love the history of restorative yoga where um, it stems from the Iyengar lineage. So BKS Iyengar, um, he would have his students when they were sick or injured, practice restorative yoga. And uh, traditionally Iyengar yoga is a very rigorous one, a very um, you know physical practice. Mm-hmm. And when they were sick or injured, he would have them practice restorative yoga so they could still get their practice in, get all the different categories of poses. So twists, forward folds, laterals, inversions, all of that without putting any physical strain on the body. Mm. And that really intrigued me, this concept. And then a woman named Judith Lassiter, who's one of the founders of Yoga Journal, she studied with Iyengar and kind of took this idea of restorative yoga. She's written many books about it now and and is the one that kind of took it and popularized it and said, oh, this could be like its own thing. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be so fascinating that you could kind of still move your body but without using any physical tension whatsoever. And so if anyone is brand new to restorative yoga, what it looks like is you get a bunch of props, lots of blankets, bolsters, blocks, all sorts of different things. And you'll like prop yourself up into a pose. And, you know, maybe you'll do a restorative child's pose, which may look like having, you know, several bolsters under your chest and having blankets under your knees. You're still in a child's pose but it is not requiring any tension on the body mm. whatsoever. And I found that to be so interesting. And once I understood the why behind it, that it was, you know, intentional, maybe this is my constant need to feel like I'm doing something, mm-hmm. but I was like, Oh, this has like, this has its place and its purpose. Yes. And it didn't feel like I was quote, you know, doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're sick, and you're sitting in front of the TV or reading a book and resting and, you know, drinking soup, you don't feel like you're quote, really doing nothing. You're like, well, I'm sick. I need to heal. Mm. And when I learned about restorative yoga and I was like, oh, well, I'm not quote doing nothing. Like I'm giving my physical body a chance to recuperate, to hit the pause button, to regenerate. And that is so essential. I'm also giving the chance for my mind kind of just hit the pause button for a second. Yeah. Which is easier said than done because just like when we were speaking about, you know, stillness and silence, um, you may only do five to eight poses in a restorative class in an hour and 75 minutes. There's a whole lot of time 
for your mind to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to go wild, to think about things. And I think a really artful, restorative teacher has a way of giving different cues, giving different ways to give your mind something intentional to think about. So you don't mm-hmm. totally just, you know, go run away with your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. But there's definitely an opportunity to do that and restorative because you can't distract the body with a lot of, you know, quick movement. You're just mm. in a position resting in it. Mm-hmm. And like thinking about uh, regenerating the immune system um, and cells, I, I see now, like just you, listening to you talk about it and the founders' ideas behind it, uh, you can then see how you're encouraging lymphatic flow, you're encouraging uh, organ rinsing, uh, and all of those things are, are happening in a restorative yoga class uh, where you might have otherwise not really tuned into that happening because it's so slow and gentle, but it's happening. And that's the whole point. So thank you for sharing the the founder's reasoning behind it. I didn't know that. That's awesome. I love a good, I love a good story. Yeah. <laughs> love I love a good learning. history lesson. Yeah. yeah. Learning the why I think just mm. gives everything so much more meaning. It does. So can I ask the why on Yoga Nidra now? Because I know that's something you're super passionate about, somewhat of a specialty of yours. Yeah. Have you heard the origin story of Yoga No, I haven't. So okay, I am well, I am learning right, too. Buckle up. As, as this many is one of my favorites. Do. Yeah. <laughs> so as the story goes, um, mm-hmm. there is a um, you know, an ancient yogi, a practitioner, and um he went to an ashram to Mm -hmm. study and he woke up early in the morning at like 3 a.m. to do his mantra practice and he got up and you know they were all there was you know one of his first few days he was still learning the different mantras that they were practicing and it was really early in the morning he was tired and he fell asleep Mm-hmm. And when he woke up, you know, they're practicing these mantras for several hours when he woke up and they were doing their last few rounds, although he had not been quote, like conscious mm-hmm. or awake, he somehow had learned all of the mantras. And after those several hours, um, he was able to recite those mantras. And he became, so that's kind of the, you know, the origin story. I wasn't, I wasn't there. I can't, you know, confirm or deny, but that's the origin story. And that that he then became a little bit obsessed with this idea of like uncon or like conscious sleep. Mm -hmm. And it goes, it goes, you know, the history goes much farther back where we even see, you know, in the Vedas and things like this, um, even in, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, different stories of, how you can conquer sleep or like a fifth dimension of sleep or deities may be, you know, going to this quote, like dream light state, but it's really like through sleep, you can awaken a deeper consciousness. So this idea kind of starts to circulate. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that I can recreate this and somehow put my body to sleep, but yeah. keep my mind awake? So then Swami Rama um, comes around, which is another, you know, kind of just a big name Um, you may or may not be familiar with him, depending on how deep in the yoga space you are. But Swami Rama is the one that really popularized this practice of yoga nidra. And he was the one that kind of came up with, I guess, the formula that we have today. Um, But he actually, they did some studies. So Swami Rama was 
around. I will have to double fact check myself, but I believe it was the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, feel free to fact check me. Um, but he, there were some researchers that wanted to study him because he made this claim that he was able to go to sleep, but remember what people were saying. So they did, they did this study and deep in the corners of the internet, there are these pictures of Swami Rama in this like little speedo. I don't know why that's what they decided he had to wear for this. Oh, I think I know that picture. <laughs> it's like, it's a pretty common one. He's standing there and he has it's called an electroencephalograph, but it's one of those like big helmets with all of the little wires, right? Mm-hmm. And he's standing there and for whatever reason for this study, we just needed a speedo, <laughs> electroencephalograph. And he's standing there and the context of that picture, I think many people have seen it because it's like kind of a funny picture and like it's shown a lot for Swami Rama. But the context behind that picture is he was doing a study around yoga nidra in which they said, okay, we'll put yourself in this deep sleep state. And they were measuring his brain waves. And that's how, you know, they can tell what stage of sleep you're in. Right. So his, his brain and his body were saying that he was quote in this like deep sleep, like should be totally unconscious out. And they asked him a series of random questions. And then when he reemerged from the practice, they said, okay, what are the answers to our questions? And he was able to answer them. Mm-hmm. And, and they were kind of, they were so confused because they were like, well, science tells us you were totally asleep. You shouldn't have been aware of what we were saying. And he was able to, you know, recall and answer their questions. And he, you know, this is where this idea again of yoga nidra or like conscious sleep or putting the body to sleep to really access a deeper part of the mind came to the forefront and then it sort of evolved from there. So that's kind of the background. Is that why why we ended up with all of those tapes in the eighties? Like there were box sets of like, you can improve your life. Like all that kind of stuff. And people had to play them while they were asleep. I wonder if if there's like a connection to that science experiment. I do suspect that I have, it seems that over time there are bits of you know, yoga and I talk about yoga and like the broader sense, like the eight mm. different limbs, these different things are sometimes mm-hmm. like repackaged yes. um, in a more like, palatable, in a like Western. Yeah. yeah. So I do highly suspect that this idea of like, you know, trying to lose weight in your sleep, you just listen to these tapes or becoming your most successful self and you listen to it when you're sleeping. Even my mom would say, you know, read through your notes before a test one more time before you go to sleep. Because if it's the last thing on your mind, like you'll be processing it like all night long. And and there's conflicting research as to whether or not that works. Some say it does. Some say depends. But I do think that, you know, there is a correlation Mm. there. But it's interesting because what you see most of the research being done now on Yoga Nidra is um, the VA here is doing a lot of work with um, yoga nidra and PTSD. Mm -hmm. And how can we put the physical body to sleep to quiet the, you know, physiological responses to triggers so that we can do some healing on a mental, emotional level? Because Mm -hmm. with PTSD often, you know, if we're, we're having a physiological response to a specific trigger. So we want to put the body to sleep or to quiet the body so that we aren't kind of getting, you know, stopped right when we start because of these physiological responses. And there's some really interesting studies being done about the power of yoga nidra, um, specifically on PTSD and how, you know, you're able to kind of make some headwind on 
healing um, because you are able to put the body and like the nervous system to sleep. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's the origin story. It's like yeah. anytime you have a speedo and like scientists, <laughs> it's always a good story. <laughs> yeah, well, it tends to be. I'm thinking of Wim Hof and his experiments in, uh, he was wearing a speedo. So it seems to be a thing. Yeah, there you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so can you talk us through what someone can expect when they have a yoga nidra session? Like what is it? look like can I mean because you can just download one on your app now that's like a 15 minute or a 10 minute or a half hour you know it seems to be like a menu what is if you Kelly wanted to say this really is what you want to get out of this and this is roughly what it should look like um so people don't get had by some weird version that's been productized in a western way I'd love for you to share that sure so I feel strongly that a full yoga nidra practice like a full one you'll have kind of these little minis and things like that and I've I've dabbled in that but first things first I think that a full yoga nidra practice it is very hard to get all the steps which I'll talk about in a moment in in anything less than 30 minutes mm-hmm. being someone who not only teaches it but teaches people how to teach it it is very hard to get all of the different steps in in the full way in less than 30 minutes. Mm. So usually like if you were going to, you know, walk in and come take a yoga nidra practice with me or listen to one of my podcasts, um, what you would expect is you're going to come in and you're going to get set up in a really comfortable restorative Shavasana. Mm -hmm. If you're in a studio, you know, you're going to use lots of props, you know, blankets, bolsters, maybe an eye pillow, the lights will be dim. Um, I often like if people are listening to a recording of mine or, you know, we're doing it virtually, I'll say, you know, you can just get into bed if you want. You just want to get really physically comfortable so you can start releasing that physical body. And you're also going to be laying there for usually 45 to 75 ish minutes. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is you're getting set up for, you know, I often joke like a little yoga sleepover, a little yoga Mm -hmm. nap. (laughs) I love it. And so you get all comfortable and then you're going to begin the practice with setting an intention or a sankalpa. This is some kind of a positive statement um, around whatever the general theme is of the practice. So this could be anything, self-love, creativity, anxiety relief. It can be extremely specific. When I do one-on-one work with people, we will craft a sankalpa that could even have their name in it, someone else's name in it. It could talk about a very specific situation. I once had a woman... Um, we did a yoga nidra practice. She had uh, severe social anxiety and she wanted to be able to walk down the aisle at her wedding. Mm. Um, she was afraid she wouldn't be able to make it down the aisle, people looking at her. So we had a very specific sankalpa around, you know, allowing ourselves to be seen and walking down the aisle. Um, so it can be that specific or cool. it can be something general for a group where you're talking about, you know, I, I give myself permission to rest and honor my need for relaxation. It can be anything, but it's always going to be this positive statement. You're going to say it to yourself three times. Then yoga nidra is after we've set the intention, it's a conscious journey through the koshas, which kosha just means layer or sheath. It's like the different layers of our being. So there's the physical body, there's the energetic body, there's sort of the um, mental body, there's the wisdom body, the bliss body. And after you've journeyed through, it looks like a little bullseye. When you've journeyed through these things, you want to, in the center, um, unlock 
the true self or Mm -hmm. Atman. So yoga nidra is just a conscious journey through these different layers. They all have like a different language, a different way of accessing them. So you start with the first layer, which is the physical body. You will do a rotation of awareness through the body. So this usually will be, you know, bring your awareness to your right hand and feel, you know, the fingers of the right hand, the back of the hand, the palm of the hand. You'll spend a good amount of time just moving your awareness, rotating it through your physical body. That's Mm -hmm. the language of the first kosha. Then you're going to do some kind of breath, some kind of a breath, something, because the second kosha, that energetic body, right? Like the chakra system, your vitality, all of that, it speaks in the language of breath. So you're going to do a breath thing. And what's kind of cool about yoga nidra from both a student and a teacher standpoint is Mm -hmm. you always do the same things in the same order you can get creative as to what you do. There's so many different rotation of awareness in the body techniques, so many different options for a breath technique. So although you're following the same blueprint every time, the same order, you can create really different unique practices based on what techniques and exercises you're choosing. Mm -hmm. So you'll set the intention, you'll do some body work, you'll do some breath work, then you do some emotion work, which looks like doing these opposing feelings and sensations. You'll say, um, you know, experience joy, experience sadness. And that kind of emotion work is the language of the third kosha. Then you'll do some imagery. Um, it could be either random imagery or people, teachers will call out different images and say, visualize a white candle, a sunset, a cup of coffee, a hairbrush, like, you know, just these random images. Or it can be guided imagery, which is very much like what you're used to hearing, like in a guided meditation, you know, mm-hmm. your mind's eye, see yourself sitting on a beach, Yeah, you can see the waves, all of that. Then the final kosha, the, the bliss body, its language is silence. So you will honor some silence there for a little bit. And then you'll reinstate your intention, hopefully to the true self this time, Atman. So the same intention, same sankalpa that we stated at the beginning of the practice, we'll state it again. And then you'll stay there in a little bit of silence, a little bit more, you know, I think of this as like hanging out with the soul time, connecting with the true self, and then you'll gently reawaken and come back to the space and to the moment. And that whole process takes on average an hour-ish, give Mm. or take, you know, 10, 15 minutes on either end. Um, Alex, is that what you, I know you love yoga nidra as well. I do. Is that what you, every teacher, I will say they do it a little bit differently. I tend to be like a purist of like the koshas are in this, you know, in that order and going through them. I'm that Mm -hmm. kind of a gal, but I would love to hear about your experience with the practice or what it's like when you go. Well, and I can, I can totally appreciate why you are, because it feels like you are following what the initial intention and reasoning for it was by the person who popularized it. I get that. Um, I also get that different teachers have different ways of bringing like a, an, a, a suggestion almost of it into other things. So one of my favorite ways to experience it is Uh, There's this therapy, I don't know if you've ever come across it, called TRE, Trauma Release Exercises. And there's quivering. Oh, it's so good. Yes. You basically tremble like an animal in the wild after a stressful situation, which we once were. So it kind of makes a heck of a lot of sense for us to get back to that. 
And it's an incredible boon for the nervous system and for recovery if you're in a stressful spot. But the practitioner that uh, I do that with, uh, she was, I think it was show number 30, Sharon Mullum. Anyway, look it up, guys, because it was such a great show right at the start of the podcast. Um, At the end, so you go through this intense uh, shaking, counselling during the shaking, like it's all happening, and then it kind of ends and your body kind of just starts to slow down. And then she takes, just takes you through the noticing of each part of the physical body and then the silence that, so it's kind of an abbreviated version, I guess, if you like, but paired with that therapy, it is an amazing way to come down from something so intense. Uh, And then of course, through some great local yoga teachers attending uh, yoga nidra, sessions, uh, it's much more what you're describing, where you really take that time and you go through uh, the entire process as it was intended. So I'm a fan of both. Uh, I like to mix it up. Uh, And I feel like um, both really give you the right thing at the right time in the right context. Uh, And what I loved hearing was just how specific people can get with the intention that they bring. I think we kind of think we have to choose an intention that sounds right, especially if, you, <laughs> if you're if you not super experienced and you can think, uh, yeah, um, relaxation, I guess, or deeper <laughs> sleep. But you can really bring something very specific to that practice. And I think that's probably going to give people a lot more cause for uh, flipping their phone out and finding a good session. You have your podcast, Medita- Meditation in Minutes. Am I right? Is that what it's called? Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, it's called Mindful in Minutes. Mindful Minutes. That's yeah. it. I knew it was and There's close. definitely some, yeah, and there's mm. definitely some yoga nidra practices there. And I love what you said, Alex, about how, you know, your teacher does kind of TRE and does yoga nidra. Like one of my favorite ways to do it, I love doing a good fusion like yoga nidra lends itself to so many it's so beneficial it does yeah so I like to do either maybe I'll do a 75 minute class with like 30 minutes of restorative yoga and then you hit shavasana and you do a 45 minute yoga nidra mm-hmm. or I'll do a 45 minute yoga nidra followed with a 20 minute sound bath or something like that like this idea of being able to put the physical body to sleep and to deep rest to do some deeper work that can be so beneficial in many different modalities mm. and many different, you know, ideas, different kind of healing techniques or release techniques. And so, you know, what you're describing too sounds really cool. Even if I'm a purist, I definitely hold space for the, <laughs> I've seen some really creative ways to kind of weave yoga nidra into other things, but you absolutely can get very specific. You also can have a yoga nidra for anything. I often, because the title translates, you know, the word translates to yogic sleep. We think, oh, this is, you know, for sleeping. And it absolutely can be. There's a lot of great yoga nidra practices for insomnia, for deep rest. But you also can have one around confidence or around joy or um, speaking your truth or, Uh, public speaking honoring yeah yeah, public speaking honoring (laughs) the true self anything your intention can truly be anything Mm. that intention is just a little seed that you're planting in like that most fertile soil of the true self and the hope is by planting that seed during yoga nidra down in you know the center of all those koshas it will then begin to grow 
all the way back out through those different layers and kind of appear and blossom in your everyday life. It's definitely more of the of the long game, but many believe that yoga nidra is one of the purest practices of manifestation um, because mm. you're speaking it into existence directly into the true self, the soul space, if you will. Yeah, so good. And can I ask you a question that goes right back to the question that you were asked when you hit this small town and people say, is this going to be against my religion? Mm-hmm. Have some of those people actually found that they've brought more spirituality into their religion by practicing yoga and by doing yoga nidra? Because I often feel like in modern times we've lost the spiritual context of religion, which is really the unifying aspect of all practices of faith. And, uh, you know, it can be reintroduced to people in interesting ways. And I was just curious to see if that happened for anybody in your classes, in your orbit. So it it does for some. Mm. I think the best way I can answer that question is tell you what I tell them. Mm. And then you can come to your own conclusion. Mm. Um, but when people come to me and, and every once in a while, I still get this, especially, you know, people from the podcast, you know, they stumble across, across the podcast. They have this question. It doesn't break my brain anymore. Cause I hear it, you know, yeah. often I just got a little brain glitch the first time where I was like, huh? Oh, I can, never I can before. understand. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I tell people when they ask that question is that meditation, for example, It's the act of single pointed concentration. It is taking your mind. And if your mind was a light bulb, it's turning it into a laser pointer and focusing that laser at one thing. Mm. You get to choose what that thing is. Mm. And I explain, you know, I say, of course, you know, some of the earliest written down records of the word meditation or yoga nidra come from, you know, it's, it's almost always Christians, not to poo poo Christians that ask me this. It's always Christians that ask me, you know, Mm. is this against Christianity? And, and I'll say, you know, many times the first written record of these things are older than the existence of Christianity. So yes, Yes, it comes from a quote non-Christian text. However, like the act of meditation is single pointed concentration, taking all of your mental power and focusing it on one thing. Mm. You get to choose what that thing is. You get to set your intention. If you want to focus on your breath, that's beautiful. Mm. If you want to focus on, um, you know, a guided journey through the beach, that's beautiful. If you want to focus on meditation being your personal devotional practice, that's beautiful too. It boils down to the intention. These practices are not necessarily like a religious practice. Mm. Could you make it that with your intention? Absolutely. Could you also make it not that with your intention? Absolutely. And, you know, moving your body in a way through yoga postures or focusing on one thing through meditation that will never ask you to be a certain religion that will never, you know, try to convert you to anything. All you're doing is gaining tools for your toolbox that you can apply to your everyday life, whatever Mm. that looks like for you. Yeah. So I, I like to believe, I don't often have people that come back and share, because I also really hold space for the fact that everyone's spirituality is such a deeply personal thing. Mm. I don't ask about it a lot, but I like to think, and I like to tell my students, 
teach them how they can utilize these tools in their toolbox four different ways, which mm. can include kind of their own spirituality. Um, but for me, that boils down, you know, when you're talking about trauma, kind of creating that safe space for people mm. where they can, you know, make it what they need and what they are comfortable with. Mm. Brilliant. Thanks for answering that. It just yeah. kind of, as the conversation was evolving, I was like, I'd really love to see, you know, because well, and, it, yeah. And you may have people asking themselves that same question. And I respect that question so much. I think it's an important question mm -hmm. because when you are practicing introspection of any type, I mean, you know, yoga, meditation, yoga, nidra, all of these things, they require a lot of introspection. They require a lot of time with your mind, with your beliefs, with your thoughts. And I think it's important that we ask these tough questions. Yeah. And we inquire not only with our teachers, but mostly we inquire with ourselves because I always start that conversation with people being like, look, if this is, I, what I'm about to tell you is my reasoning, my understanding, my knowledge around it. But if this feels uncomfortable to you and it personally feels like it does not align right now, you don't need to do it. Mm -hmm. It is 100% your choice. And we only get to that place when we practice introspection and we reflect like, what do I actually believe? Mm. You know, how, how do I feel about. Which often people go through their whole lives, not really asking themselves those questions and, and yeah. just kind of doing it because that's the house you grew up in or the place you grew up in. And that's what yeah. was the norm around you. So it, and yeah. sometimes we're not ready. Mm. There may be people, maybe all of your friends have recently really got it into meditation that doesn't mean that if you don't, if you don't feel ready yet, or you're just, it's not time for you, like, that's okay. Mm. Everyone's journey is unique. And I just think of all these practices as tools that you can utilize on your personal journey. And I think that, that, that would never ask you to do something that is against like your core beliefs. Yeah. And what I love about that whole scenario is the simple act of coming closer and asking and, being willing to be curious and experience something different is the end to this othering that we have going on in our world yeah, at the moment, yeah. the silos, the polarization. The, mm -hmm. I just think that's, you know, everything we've talked about today, all the practices transcend all of that stuff. Absolutely. I yeah. Think so too. Mm. Thank you so much for joining me for this chat, Kelly. It was so wonderful to learn more about your work and your experience of teaching yoga and teaching Yoga Nidra. I would love to know for the people who especially tuned into the Yoga Nidra part and thinking, oh, I need a bit of that in my life. Um, <laughs> what is your advice for the best way to connect to a, a good practice? Do you have one recorded online in all the stuff that you do? I do. I have quite a few um full yoga nidra practices that are recorded. Mm -hmm. Um, I can send you, you know, the link, Alex, I have for people who use Spotify, I have them all like on oh, a fantastic. playlist. Yes, please. I'm I sure like everyone would love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think, you know, of course everyone is welcome. I would love to have everyone come join me, you know, over in my little corner of the internet to do that. But I think it's important you know, to remember that there is a teacher for every student and a student for every teacher mm. and not every teacher is for every student and vice versa. So I also encourage you, like, give it a Google. See, yeah. is there a yoga Say who's doing practice? something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and give it a try if you don't care for it. 
try a different teacher. If you listen to one of our recordings, you're like, oh, that's good, but I want to try something different. Try something different and find the person that is teaching it in the way that resonates deeply with you. Mm, I can't echo that more. I remember a coaching client years ago said, no, meditation, just so you know, I don't do it. (laughs) It was a guy, a C-sweet guy. I was like, okay, let's unpack that a little bit. And he's like, it's just that I hate their voice. I'm like, okay, so who's they and what meditation have you been doing? And it turns out he had downloaded the first meditation app he found in the app store, pressed play, tried for a week, and their voice upset him so much. The tone, it just didn't work for him. And then kind of like me with the Yogi Bendy teacher on the hill made a complete assumption that meditation was therefore not for him. And then it was about finding exactly what you talk about, the teacher, the student, the fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I really just encourage people, give it a try. You know, I'll send that link over to the Spotify playlist. You can start there, but try different stuff until you find the one where you're like, oh, that's, that's what I needed. And then, you know, you found a good fit. I love it. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was so great to chat with you. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented. So you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.